Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'll serve as your moderator and host this afternoon. The first executive order, I think it, it was probably one of the first three executive orders that the president signed when he took office back in 2017, was Executive Order 13767, or the Border Security Immigration Enforcement Improvements Order. <laughs> what was that order? That order was a, uh, a plan to build a wall along Mexico and the United States, a 450-mile-long wall that the president had made a promise during his campaign um, to do. And so as of July of this year, half of that wall has been built, and there is a goal to finish that wall by the end of his first term. Uh, well, I bring that up because that while that was the first of of many executive orders that the president has signed, it would be the first of many immigration involved orders and policy changes that the president and his administration continue to make. Immigration continues to be a hot button issue till this day, even during a pandemic. And so we'll discuss those policy changes. Very excited to introduce to you our guest today. Um, since 2007, she has given a whole lot of her time to the community. She's dedicated her time to volunteer at several local nonprofit organizations, such as the American Bar Association Immigration Justice Project, the San Diego Volunteer Lawyers Program, Legal Aid Society of San Diego, Alliance San Diego, Veterans Pro Bono Program, and all with the goal of helping the unmet needs of the underserved community in the local San Diego area. She's got her own local practice there, and also one of the first Thai-born lawyers to be nominated and selected to receive a couple awards, the Judith uh, Judge Judith Keep Award and the Outstanding Community Service Award, which are very prestigious and rarely presented. Now, I came across her, uh, her social media uh, videos on Facebook and YouTube, which has garnered an impressive twenty to 30,000 views per videos as she informs and educates the immigrant community about immigration policies here in the United States. And so let's welcome Tammy Sumonta here on the Michelle Miao Show. Tammy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting. Hello, Sawadika. Sawadika, that's right. Yes. Um, so before we get into all the the changes and the hard conversations, let's get to know you a little bit better. You know, how did San Diego become home, and why law? Why immigration? So um, my background is of course in law. You know, I graduated with a um, bachelor degree of law from Thammasat University, one of the actually the oldest law school in Thailand. And um, after I worked in Thailand for a couple of years, I came here to continue my study. And San Diego happens to be um, the city that, you know, based on the, I was living in Thailand and based on the news and the information that available very little back then in, in 1999, it still shows that San Diego is still um, the most, the, the best weather in um, the in America. So um, we showed that because, you know, I came from the um, capital city, Bangkok. So we have the most polluted city. We are the most polluted city in the world, uh, one of them. And so I showed San Diego. Um, little do I know that San Diego actually is next to, not far from the border, from Mexico. And my main focus has always been in law. I wanted to, when I first studied law, I did not know much about immigration. And through the years of um, my life here in the U.S., I first came here as a student. As a law student, I went through all the process of the hiring and firing and rehiring and refiring. Um, I went through the, the year 2001, the 9-11, um, year 2008, where the recession happened. So from my experience, I knew how important it is for at least one particular Thai people like me, um, how important it is for immigration law. So I wanted to, and of course, during my volunteership, I also learned how important it is to have um, proper proper paper um, authorization to be able to open so many doors for you, including the job and the benefits that you can actually live your life and establish your life in the U.S. 
So we're going to get into, obviously, some specific immigration issues. But just before we do, what's it like and how are you performing your, your job now in, in this time of, you know, sheltering at home? Are you going into court or are, how are sessions being held? How are you communicating with judges? And what, how also a part of that is how are your clients dealing with this? You know, is their stress level higher just because of everything that's going on? Yeah, it has been a challenge. You know, we since um, I would say since the 13th of March, we just gone completely telework. I told all my staff to you work from home now because of the pandemic. I do not want to risk anyone's life or health. Our office is in the high rise building in the heart of downtown San Diego. So we have like 20, 30 floor of, you know, in the building. So I don't want to risk anyone's uh, health on that. So we gone we had gone telework since march and for court uh for cases in court we will discuss more about that i already prepared to talk about that right now court some of them most of them i should say they're already fully open some of them open in some area but we'll discuss more about that it's a little bit challenged in operating but after a few months we already get used to it all right let's get let's get to it uh, let's start with daca deferred action for childhood arrivals in this basically uh, is a program for individuals who are brought to the country at a very young age and so good news in june the supreme court had ruled that the president could not terminate daca uh, uh, impacting a lot of people, a lot of individuals. And so let's let's talk about, you know, DACA, where we're at now. Uh, since the president cannot terminate the program, are we in the clear? What is the status of the program? DACA, I think a lot of people already know what it is. DACA basically is just the deferred action of childhood arrival. So that is the full name of it. It's a mouthful, so people say just DACA. DACA basically is just um, another name that they call it. It's just dreamers basically refer to a lot of young people who just came here when they were young and they did not have any capability to make any decision on her own, came here because the parents, either the mom or the dad or even some aunts or uncles, took them from their home and then came to the U.S. for a long time. And then after they reached the age of capability, 18, and they could not make any decision and they do not want to go home anymore. Home is here that according to them, home is the U.S. where they grew up. Um, some of them, they came here since they were th- two or three years old. So this is all that they know. And um, 2012, in June 2012, is when President Obama created this program. And under DACA, certain young al- arrivals who do not have any criminal convictions, not even one. If you strike one, you're out. Not even one will be able to um, apply for DACA. So now DACA is a program that give you... There's, there's so many mistakes um, that don't understand DACA. And when the, the DACA program came out, a lot of people protest that because they did not know much about DACA. So now when they know more about DACA, what do they give, what don't they give? So now people kind of like lower the, the protest down a little bit. So DACA give them opportunity to, to work legally. So they basically give them authorization or work card, the work permit, so they can work. And the duration of DACA is every two years. So that means every two years, you got to have to be rechecked, you know, to make sure that you're not going to be um, getting yourself in trouble. Every two years, it will expire. You have to apply for a new DACA protection and a new work permit. Now, the fight that just happened, it was because, because the... There's so many people that don't, you know, as we know that they are pro-immigrant and anti-immigrant. So they're always two sides of the story. And for the lawsuit that happens, it just um, happened that the last one, the the most recent one that happened, the uh, Supreme Court said that, well, now you should, USAS, Department of Homeland Security, you need to accept DACA applicant. And a few days after Supreme Court decision came out, USAS um, announced on their website saying that, well, the, um, the court order, we're not going to comply with that. So right now at the current state of play that we have is that the new initial DACA application will not be accepted. It will be rejected by Department of State. 
they also reduce the two years, reduce it to one year. So another important thing is that they will reject the application for advanced parole, meaning that they do not let you go out and come back unless you really have emergency situations. Wow. Go ahead, John. Well, my, my, so by reducing it from two years to one year, it would seem to me a government that is trying so hard to, you know, downsize and, and streamline things, they've doubled the amount of work, obviously, that they're going to have to do in paperwork and, and, and uh, recording and all that kind of stuff. I mean, did they give an explanation for why that decision was made, or do, was it just a, an added hurdle to make it more difficult to deter people? I wish that they would give explanation on every single action that they do. <laughs> but no, in this situation, no, they did not. And actually, um, I think for, by reducing it to one year, or actually with the follow, with the delay in working, mm. the reducing of the time will pile up more work on them, in my opinion, because they already back up on their work. Most of the applications right now is eight months, 10 months, uh, 12 months. So that's already a year. And now reducing it to a year, meaning that you, the DACA applicant could and might um, go into no paperwork, no, no protection for almost a year, waiting for their decision. So now that, that part is still unclear on what are they going to do? What, what are they going to do? Are you going to send out a receipt notice and saying that your, your protection is extended? There's no clear um, statement on that at this point. I would think a, a big worry would be if I've filed this, this thing and I'm waiting and I'm waiting, but my previous uh, work authorization has expired, does the fact, you know, I, I assume I cannot work then until I get the new one. If I do, does that then become the criminal act that then the government can use to get rid of me? So this, this question is a great question. It actually ties up to one of the topics that we are going to talk about, as far as I understand. And most of the employer, especially the big one, the tech company and the big, the big employers, they participated in what is called an I-9 program. And an I-9 program, everyone who registered on that, uh, the employer, they need to re-verify. They need to verify the immigration status and the authorization to work, eligibility to work of the employee. So it affects a lot on employer who registered in the I-9 program, an employee who works with the uh, I-9 register employer or even with the employer who did not um, register in the I-9 program, but they do have policy on re, um, re-verify the, um, the status, immigration status and capability to work of the employee. And we just had a lawsuit and I think we, just, uh, we will discuss this in a little bit later. I was just going to ask if there are efforts, you know, we know that some of the immigration changes that the administration has tried to make, some of it has been held up, you know, in court proceedings and lawsuits. And if there would be a response to Homeland Security not necessarily complying to the Supreme Court's ruling, I'm I'm, I'm processing that if if, uh, that is even, that is possible. I guess it is because it's happening. So tell me, what do you th- what do you think? Should we we, we move? A- well, that was the question. If you know of any effort to respond to the the Homeland Security's non compliance to the Supreme Court's ruling on DACA, this is this is very um, interesting, and uh, you know, a lot of attorneys are very upset about the response that. First of all, the, the response that we saw when they announced about not complying with the uh, Supreme Court decision on DACA, that is the first thing that kind of upsetting the uh, community. Um, a lot of my colleagues, they're, they're furious about that. And obviously, that is not complying with the, the APA law, you know, the Administrative Procedure Act, that specifically saying that you need to comply with that. But Obviously, that's not what's happening in um, in USAS world, and this is how they are going to conduct what their business, the procedure that they announced it. And that is why when you don't comply with the court order, 
and the person who got affected the most are the applicants, are the people who actually obeying the law and look forward, look up to the, the legal system. They look up to this system to make it work because we play by the rule. We comply, comply with everything. But then now this happened. It, it's such a nightmare to everyone. Where do you want to go after this? Because I know we brought up a couple of questions that kind of are leading up to the different topics that we were going to discuss. Do you want to go with the the president's uh, temporary suspensions of work visas or do you want to because the other side of, you know, even DACA, what I'm thinking is, you know, this annual renewal. What happens if you're caught in the system? Are they enforcing, you know, deportation, deportation proceedings or ICE enforcement during, uh, you know, COVID-19. Those are a couple questions that we were going to talk about. So what do you think? Where should we go next? Well, why don't we talk about public charge? Because, it. um, yeah, even though you might be very well eligible to apply for DACA and someday in the future, if you want to adjust your status, um, you still have another hurdle, which is a public charge. And, you know, under this realm, there's still good things and bad things that happen in here. The public charge, let's start by talking about the history. Public charge before 2019 that this idea was introduced. The concept of public charge is in a guideline. It's not really a rule. It's in a guideline since 1999. So you can see how old the rule, uh, the guideline is. Um, it was to say, officer, this is your guideline. When you have an application for green card, that is the adjustment of status, this is your guideline. This is what you need to do. And the guideline carried out in the form of the I-864, one of the applications that they need to fill out and say that this is how much money I made last year under the, that I report to the IRS. This is how much I made. And I make enough to sponsor another person. So let's say I make enough to sponsor my wife. I say I made enough to sponsor my husband, my mom, my dad, my daughter. And because I made enough money, this person is not going to depend on public benefits. They are not going to apply for any public benefit that is federally funded. So that is the old rule in 1999. Now, since 1999, people immigrating, immigrating, immigrating into the U.S. And there's so many um, immigrants who are applying for public benefits. And they're starting to see the increase, highly increase of that. So the government was thinking, well, we probably need to do something about that. That's why they have this concept, this uh, new rule came out. And the new public charge rule that came out, it was um, back in 2018, October 2018, that the government trying to say, well, just to let you know, by the way, we are going to have this public charge came out next year, which is 2019. So in 2019, um, in August, they, they um, made a statement officially saying that, well, we are going to um, implement the public charge rule in October. However, before it happened, uh, during that time, everyone was so worried because there's so many people in this country that depend on so many benefits. For example, Section 8, you know, for example, Medicare, Medical, or um, for disabled people, they depend on so many things. So food stamp is one of the high, highly ranked um, benefits that a lot of people depend on. So a lot of there are so many concerns about that. And that is what the media call the wealth test. Um, but we would like to call it a public charge. Um, so and in October 2019, before the implementation of this, Actually, the court act, the court made a decision to put a temporary injunction to the enforcement of this rule. So basically, the court saying that this is a very important matter. We need to thoroughly discuss this and consider this matter. Let's put a pause on that. Don't implement, don't enforce it yet. Let me decide on this. So to put a pause on that, that give another um, three months until January of 2020, that is when the court came out and say, the decision came out and say that, okay, we green light, we give you a green light, you can go ahead and enforce the public charge rule. So um, after that came out, um, 
we have the new form that a lot of people already fill out. This is the I-944. This is a public charge application, basically, just to tell them what I have been applying, what I have been using, or what I applied, or even I never used it in the past. They, they basically want to get past information about your public charge, uh, your public benefit receiving. Um, however, that happened in January, right? And then everyone needs to comply with that until COVID came in 2020 of March. So when March came and COVID came with that, the Department of um, Human Services announced first before the president announced that, well, this is a, there's a health concern at large and we announced the emergency for healthy concern. But a few weeks later after that, in, um, in March as well, on the 16th, is when the president say, well, this is a uh, national emergency. Um, we have COVID now. Now, because of COVID and the spread is just, everyone knows about this, you know, the spread is just immensely happened. So um, there's so many concerns that immigrants who got infected or be exposed to the person who already got infected, they were unsure if they got infected, they, they don't know and they don't want to go to get tested because they're so afraid of being arrested or being um, seen as accepting public benefits. So they, they held themselves and by doing that, if they are infected, if they're actually positive, they could spread the virus. So that is why there's so many lawsuits. Um, there is a lawsuit that filed. And there are, um, if you remember the time that it was first spreading, it was in New York. So that is why the state of New York and the city of New York was one of the few um, plaintiffs who asked for this um, injunction, asked for the court to put an injunction on public charge. And after they put, um, they give this, um, they filed this lawsuit. The court gave out a decision, put a, not decision, I'm sorry, put a, an order, a preliminary injunction order not to enforce the public charge because of the concerns about infection of COVID. They want people who unsure if, who are unsure if they might get COVID, they want them to get tested. Or even if you already got COVID, they want them to get treated to make sure that you know your life is more important than your concern about being seen as receiving public benefits. And the court decision came out in July of 2020, these past few, few months. After that, um, a few days later, this is in contrast to DACA, a few days later, USAS announced on its own website that, okay, it's complying with the court decision and they are not going to request that the applicant for green card that they're not requiring to submit the I-944 form, which is the form that give out the information about public benefits uh, that they received. However, we thought that was the end. Um, yesterday, yesterday in August 12th, um, the court has another decision saying that, well, even though that injunction is nationwide, we are making an exception on three states, um, which is uh, New York, Vermont and Connecticut. So New York, Vermont and Connecticut, which is in, under the second circuit, these three states, when you apply for your green card, when you apply for your adjustment of status, residents under these three states, you need to submit the application, the I-944 application, which is the information that you have you ever received or will you ever be receiving, will you ever be likely to receive public benefits from the government? So that's basically the, the current state of play is that we do not have a nationwide injunction. We, except for this, we, we don't have a nationwide injunction because there are these three states that are still enforcing this rule. And Tammy, you, you mentioned that the injunction that is in place for the rest of the country uh, did you say it was a temporary injunction? Is there is there a time limit on it, or what, what's the trigger for the next determination of it? 
That's a good question. Thank you. So the court decision that came out, the injunction is tied to the COVID, right? Because the concern was the COVID. So the court decision is conditioned upon COVID outbreak. So we still need to see that, well, if the COVID outbreak already dispersed, already there's no more outbreak, we can get it under control, then the injunction could just be um, gone. Now, another thing that I want to add is that, you know, the 1999 guideline, just when I mentioned earlier that they want to make sure that you are able to sponsor the person, but this new public charge, they basically add a burden to the applicant itself. So the 1999 guideline, they add the burden to the sponsor, to, to, to the petitioner. I want to apply for my spouse. So they add the, the burden on you. But the new public charge rule, they add the burden on the applicant. So you want a green card? Show me you're not going to be a public charge. My apologies. I'm still confused as to why the it's, we don't have a nationwide injunction and why the, the three states are excluded from the injunction. I mean, what's the justification behind that? How, how can the court rule in this way? So I would guess that it was because of the, uh, the spread. So the spread, as we can see that um, in New York, they already got it under control. And we can say it under control because the spread is not as as um, as much as it used to be. Interesting. So, so is that ruling in under the Second uh, Circuit Court, is that being appealed to the Supreme Court or is it a done deal, at least in those three states? At this point, it is a done deal. It could be any changes in the future, but this is the most recent. It just happened yesterday. Okay. Very interesting. And one clarifying question around public charge of this wealth test. It's just ridiculous. The wealth test. You have to be wealthy enough to you know, live in this great country. Who does it apply to? You know, we talked about, uh, for example, dreamers having to now renew annually. Uh, you know, does it apply to new people who want to adjust their status uh, as, as permanent residents? Or if you're already in queue and you're already in the process, does it also still apply to you? Who does it actually apply to? So, yes, it's a good question because uh, so many people are unclear about this unless you, they are in immigration field. It applies to everyone who wants to apply for a green card. Basically, if you want a green card, you need to show that. If you already have a green card, they will not see you under the public charge rule. There's another rule that called a deportation based on the public charge. So this new rule that came out in February 2020, it basically puts um, another determination on the USCIS officer that they need to look at the applicant if they are going to the green card holder who wants to apply for naturalization, if that person has ever received public benefit during a certain period of time, then they need to look into that. So those are the only two situations that it applies to. This is, a, this is a, another interesting question about this, though, you know, as far as like government assistance and benefits. I mean, we're, it's a pandemic. It's COVID-19 times. Mo a lot of people are uh, applying for unemployment. There aren't a lot of resources for undocumented folks. Uh, you know, people are, are looking to receive some kind of help, such as, you know, stimulus. I mean, what falls under pu public benefits? And if you, if you automatically get a stimulus check from the government... You know, does that mean that you are taking money from the government? Is that a benefit? Okay, so this question sounds like it's simple, but it opens a lot of doors to discussion. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you're talking about unemployment benefit and you're talking about similar check, it, get into, it gets into the area of employment law. Okay, so uh, the most important thing that you need to remember is that when you are a non-citizen and non-green card holder, you actually cannot work unless you have an authorization to work. So an authorization to work can come in, can come in different field, uh, forms, can be a visa that you can work under a work visa, or you can work because you have an authorization card to work here. And the authorization card um, is basically a call, uh, we people know it as work permit. Work permit, you can get it if you're an applicant for asylum or you're an applicant for a U visa for certain types or even some students after they graduate and go into under the OPP program, 
they can get that too. So now the question comes here that COVID came and the person cannot work. Now, can they receive pub can they receive unemployment benefit? If they receive unemployment benefit because they are eligible to work, then there's no problem. But now if they're not eligible to work and then they're receiving public benefit, they're receiving, I'm sorry, they're receiving unemployment benefit, that could affect you in the future. However, USCIS announced it on their website that unemployment will not be considered a public benefit. Okay, and the reason is because unemployment is what you pay into your own account, right? And then you receive it. However, if you're not the person who paid into the account and then you apply, then you tap into someone else's money, right? This is why there are immigration lawyers to try to figure all this stuff out. <laughs> um, you, you, you mentioned that originally there, there were these guidelines st- stretching back to 1999 that they've, they've kind of been applying. Um, and, but I've also heard you know, the words used that, that have you ever received any, any you know, public benefits? Um, so, which leads me to kind of wondering about retroactive changes in the future where they might reinterpret, you know, whether it's unemployment or, or something else. Have, have they done that kind of thing over the past, what would it be, 21 years? Or have they basically stayed in, in, in agreement on the, the category of what is and is not considered a public uh, assistance? A good question. So the 1999 guideline, the name is the guideline. So it's not a set rule. The guideline give a very broad discretionary decision that USAS officer or adjudicating officer who reviewing your application, they can make a determination on the certain facts of the applicant in front of them. So that is one thing that even though it's a guideline and they can make a decision if they see fit, you know, in the decision, in the fact that they, certain fact that they have. Um, as like I explained earlier, the 1999 put, puts a burden on the applicant, I'm sorry, on the petitioner. Mm-hmm. I want to apply for them. So they put a petition on you. Well, you want to bring them in, show me, right? So now because of the new rule, now they put the, uh, the burden on the other person. You want to come, you want to come in, show me. Uh, I think that's a good segue, you know, to talk about the fact that USCIS is facing a $1.2 billion deficit. And if Congress doesn't act, they're looking to furlough uh, up to 13,000 workers out of, I think, I don't know, maybe 20,000 or so, which would really leave very little people to now have to handle these new policy changes. It seems like, you know, extra increased workload steps for adjudicators and immigrant or immigration officers. Let's talk about that. I mean, what, what will be the impact? What is the, it seems it would be drastic if 13,000 people are furloughed um, who handled, you know, immigration cases in the United States. So, by getting into that, you need to understand that USCIS um, is an agency that um, that is self-generated income, meaning that they would normally um, receive income from, receive their own revenue. They have their own revenue from applications. And so now if it depends if the applications, there's a lot of applications, then they would make a lot of money, right? And now during COVID, of course, um, economy is bad. People save money. They're obviously decreasing in the application fees that they receive. And that's why it um, impacts on their revenue. And from the announcement that they made, they would be, um, if they don't receive the $1.2 billion funding from the federal government to help them, they would be following 13400 people and the 13,400 people here the positions that they have is all across the country so every single office will be affected now um, back in July of 2020 this year this last month we had um, the immigration association lawyer in America or ALA we have a conference and at the conference USAS already admitted that they are already delayed in doing everything, delayed in, in sending out receipt notice, delayed in sending out um, cards and 
work permit, like I said, or a green card, they are delaying doing everything. Now, if they are following a lot of people, imagine how much more delay we would get in everything. And that, that is why it ties to when we talk about one year, reducing it to one year. Now, it's going to be all impacting all across abroad. Um, so I can imagine this. And since we're on this topic, I want to talk about the most recent news that just came out on August the 3rd, that the court had made a decision on this, um, made an injunction to USCIS that USCIS need to produce the work permit card and the green card to those who already received an approval notice but had not received the physical card itself. So usually um, USAS would contract uh, with a third party company that this third party company would produce the card. USAS will make a, a review, the case will make an adjudication. They'll say, well, I approve this case, send it to the third company. So the third party company, after they receive the notice on the notification from USAS, they will make a card. Um, according to the information that they received. And usually that happens within 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Now in June, because of the budget shortfall, they do not renew the contract with this third company. And they said, well, it's okay. I'm just going to do it myself. <laughs> so <laughs> now you can imagine they already delayed. They already have a lot of work. And now they are very behind in producing the card. So... There is a lawsuit that filed by this um, lady. She is an Indian national who came in here under an H-1B visa, which is a work visa. And later she married her husband who also had an, a work visa. So she changed her status and um, into the dependent of that person, which is an H-4. And under an H-4 category, she is eligible to apply for a work permit. And that's what she did. Her, her lawyer did that for her, helped her until this most recent one that she did not receive her card, her work permit card. And it has been more than 100 days that she has been waiting. So in her case, which is the same thing that we discussed before, that in her case, she could not provide proof to her employer that she is eligible to work. She has authorization to work. So him, her employer said that, well, if you cannot show me you approve that you are authorized to work, I'm going to terminate you. So you can see how, how much this impact, not just one person, but it impacts the whole, the whole community, the, the, the nation, the economy of the nation too. So she now, she cannot work. She, she would not be able to work without the card, right? So after the lawyer tried everything, contact USA several times, contact the congressman office to help to ask them for help. They intervened and they still did not get anything moving forward. USAS still said, well, we are unable to expedite your production of your, the production of your card. So after they tried everything, they exhausted all the options. There's no other way. So they, the lawyer had to file um, a lawsuit. And as soon as the lawyer filed a lawsuit, USAS magically were able to produce the card for the person. And the, she received the card, or well, she's happy, but, and then USAS trying to say that, well, we asked court to dismiss the case because the case is already moot. Um, moot is the legal term saying that it's already too late. You, you don't have an, a damage anymore, basically. But uh, what US, USAS already forgot <laughs> is that there are about 75,000 people that waiting for the physical EAD card, the work permit, to, to, to be produced and send it to them. There are also about 50,000 people that waiting for the physical green card to be produced and send it to them because they already received the approval notice. USAS already adjudicated the case, already told them, we are okay with your application. You are approved. Your application is approved. They already told them. Now, please wait for the card. And then they've been waiting, 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 never receive anything. So that is why this is a class action. So the court had made a decision saying that, well, within seven days from the 3rd of August, now USCIS, you have to produce the card. Basically, you know, do what you're supposed to do within 48 hours, you know, supposed to do 
as um, as if you still had that company. So produce a card, send it to the applicant who already received the approval notice. Wow. So that is the most current state of play. This sounds like on this a one. crisis. Uh, well, it's, it's interesting the, the, what you mentioned, Tammy, that uh, USCIS uh, is is intended to, supposed to be a self-funding uh, agency, um, but now they'll be on public support. Mm. <laughs> oh, back. Well, on a serious level, though, it was as you touched on also the the applicant. Then I assume is paying twice as much in application fees because they're doing it twice as often. Is that correct? Oh, that's interesting point of view. Yes, instead of uh, two years, now you're getting one year and then with the same fee. Now, do, we do have a fee increase as well that it will take effect on the 2nd of October this year. And um, DACA, I believe DACA is, we have a very um, minimal increase. But one, th- one thing that I want to add about the um, the delaying in working of USAS is that the delay is everything across the board on on all applications. So application for green card, application for naturalization, which is very important. So you can see that the impact on this one, it impacts on the economy side because people cannot work and impacts on the living, the living expense, the living in everyday living uh, matter of the people because they cannot work, they could lose their job and also impact on the national side as far as becoming a U.S. citizen because now they delay on um, reviewing all the application, including naturalization. So instead of having basically 5,000 more people to be able to vote, now they cannot vote because they could not pass the, the application process, could not move forward. Another form of voter suppression, my opinion, my opinion, not Tammy's. Um, <laughs> I, again, like I, I said, or I, I kind of mentioned under my breath earlier, but this sounds like a crisis. And actually, you know, public health uh, directors and officials, I mean, we start adding it up uh, between public charge or the wealth tests and DACA and, you know, all these changes that you're talking about, um, the, the very big worry we're already experiencing a pandemic is a public health crisis. Um, that leads us, you know, to the, the next discussion. I want to make sure that we have time for, which is uh, uh, during you know, COVID-19 times, the president had mentioned that he would suspend, you know, immigrants who coming over for, with work visas, such as H-1B, uh, J visa, L visa. Um, and, and that was, you know, to protect the American economy since over 20 million people have applied for unemployment here in the country and kind of keep jobs, you know, for Americans um, or people who are living in America to Americans. And I think that that was like a 60-day suspension, but it's unclear where we stand today, how people are affected and impacted. You gave a great example of somebody, um, you know, uh, uh, with with a work visa, but let's talk about that temporary suspension. Where are we at today with that? So, um, before we understand where we are now, we have to look in the past. That is my one of my, you know, main always explanation. You want to understand today, you gotta look in the past. And when we look in the past, we can see that um, it, since January of two thousand twenty. There are many executive orders and so many people lose track of that because there's so many that came out um, since January of 2020. And the first one that uh, came out, it was because of the COVID as well. Um, The first one that came out was in January of 2020. And this is the first travel ban and the ban is on Chinese citizen that came in, um, that would come into the country. They would just basically ban that. There's no expiration of that, so they leave it out. So we're banning them. Um, and the second the second one that just came out, it was in February. So basically, we have um, executive order almost every month that came out right now. In February, they add Iran to the list of country of people who came, who came from that those countries, they will be banned not to coming in. And then in March, they add the UK, in England, and Schengen country. Everyone um, in the Schengen country, England, and Ireland will be banned from coming in. After the pandemic happened, after COVID, on the 22nd, remember that the president say he declared national emergency 
on the 16th of March. On the 22nd, he signed a security order telling the Department of State basically the consulate from other countries um, abroad saying that, well, stop working because of the healthy the health concern we want to be safe we want you to be safe the safety of your of the employee and the people who came who would come into the office so stop working so since march of 22nd uh, 22nd of march all the consulate offices they closed to in person to routine service and then the next month in uh, april there's another proclamation that came out that suspend entry of everyone who posts risk of U.S. market labor. So here is the one that would be protecting the economy of the U.S. They on the face. However, this proclamation is not really making the news that much because of the on because of the the proclamation itself. On the face, when you read it, it sounds very severe. But when you read it into the um, the content. There are so many exceptions to this proclamation. So many of my friends would say this is toothless. This is there, there's no impact that much on on immigration. And then the next month in May, they have another um, suspension of entry, which is another ban that added Brazil. If we remember, Brazil is highly infected, right? In second on top of the chart of the world infection. So in May, um, the president add Brazil to that. Um, now, important thing is that the executive order, the proclamation that came out, the most important one is the one that came out in June of 22nd, which is the one that Michelle just mentioned. This one made the news because it impacts a lot of um, foreign workers. So under this proclamation, there are four types of visa that um, visa holders that got infected by this, uh, I'm sorry, got impacted by this. Um, the first one is H-1B, H-1B visa, um, H-2B visa, a J visa, and an L visa. So those four categories are, um, are the visa holders that got impacted by this proclamation. Under this proclamation, this is my opinion based on my research. We can see that about 65% of um, immigration immigrants in the U.S., 65% are these people, these people who are foreign workers. But if you compare between a family-based petition immigration or business-based immigration, the business base is a lot less than family. So this is about 35% of work visa that got impacted by this, um, by this proclamation. And this proclamation, they put, even though they put a suspension on these people, there are so many exceptions as well. For example, you, you, would need, you would be able to come in if you could show that you are part of involvement or you are engaged in your employment has the impact on national security or the food supply chain. Basically, if you're working in a restaurant or in a, um, the food supply chain, you would be able to show that and then you'll be able to come in. Um, J1, the J visa, if you are in scholar or in medical, in healthcare system, you would be able to come in. However, this ban is set to expire at the end of the year, December 31st of 2020. So... We can see, and now it ties to the delay in the process, right? So basically, if you are if you are in the line of receiving the the visa, you're not holding the visa, and you're outside the country, you're probably not going to be in, uh, affected by this proclamation because of the delay in processing of the application, and because of the proclamation in March that say consulate close office. Right, so you have to understand it is is all tied together, um, and then in July of two thousand twenty-nine, there also oh no, this is a public charge injunction. The another important one that came out it was in um, August this year on the third that came out that aligning federal contracting. That basically this one is not really called for an action active action, but they call for passive action. That's how I see it, that the executive order tells the federal government that when you hire a contractor, you should look at 
their experience and not the the diploma, not the degree. And they leave the determination up to the Department of Labor to make a report to the president so that you need to send a report to the pres president based on your determination. What do you think of such contractors? Uh, do we need them? Um, are their experiences would be beneficial to the country, to the nation? And then yesterday as well, <laughs> there's so many things happened yesterday. Yesterday on the 12th of August, we also have a notification that came out from the Department of State. Now, we, when we talk about Department of State, we talk about the work that happened outside of the country, the work that happened at the consulate. Okay, so there is a, a notification, an update that came out from the Department of State that although you may be banned by the proclamation on your H-1B, on your L-1, here are some exceptions. And they have very broad exception here. For example, you can get a visa stamp. So that's basically, you can get a visa stamp and you should be able to come into country if you can show that you continue to work for the same employee, the same position in the same capacity, um, under the same, um, same employee, same, same position, and same work duties that you have. And your work is very critical in the infrastructure sector. And your wage is making you meet the minimum wage, the prevailing wage in the immigration world. And this, there will be a financial hardship on the employer, on the employer if you could not come in here. So if you can show so many exceptions, there are so many exceptions into that. And you need to meet at least two out of five criteria that they, the exception that they listed out. If you can meet that, you can show that you're exempted and then you can get a visa stamp and then come in here before the 31st of December of this year. So that is the most um, current set of play for the uh, foreign nation. Oh, another um, sure. important, I'm sorry, Michelle. No, no it's okay. Um, the important thing that I want to point out is that the proclamation and all the entry ban, it does not um, include asylum applications. Okay, so asylum applicants, they can they can apply, they can still apply. The travel ban does not impact them. But I assume that even those applications are still going to face the slowdown of, of work just by the nature of USCIS being underpersoned. <laughs> As as one of our viewers noted on on YouTube, it's just this really is a crisis. But it's like crisis on top of crisis. On you know, there was one thing just dealing with with the DACA issue, and then there was you know these other rules that were shifting, and then there you know COVID came along, and then there's the the funding and economic issues that that have come around. Um, a, a very scary time, I would think, for a lot of people trying to work through this. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. As we're winding down on time, Tammy, I think that, you know, just to add on to John's thoughts and our viewer for sending that in, we're in this crisis and there seems to be extreme delays that are upending, you know, human people's lives. You as the attorney, I mean, I can't even imagine you know, what stress level you're at and uh, <laughs> what workload is for you and kind of what what is what are your thoughts on uh, you know, path forward or what needs to happen. I mean, we know what needs to happen. Something needs to happen. People need to be working and applications need to be processed, but it just sounds like we're in this, this crisis, this stalling, at least until the end of the year. One thing that I always keep telling my clients is that you need to be on top of the changes, which is very difficult, you know, because um, of the media, sometimes the media try to um, portray the, something that is not big as big and something that is not something that is big they they could miss something and it's very difficult and it might be not easy for a lay person to stay on top of immigration changes immigration policy changes or immigration law changes all the time but that's what you always do until you are safe as a U.S. citizen. And even though when you are a U.S. citizen, there's still some laws that could impact you, that could affect you if the, the path that you become a U.S. citizen are not clear. I think the last thought we'd like for, from you is, uh, and this is, you know, just, just, a, just an article that came across my iPad and that the president had this thought 
that perhaps, you know, we could bar U.S. citizens and permanent residents from entering the country if they are thought to have COVID-19 or actually have COVID-19. And to me, I kind of just read it and was like, oh, it's probably another tweet or maybe just a a thought. (laughs) However, John did give me some uh, facts and information in our our U.S. history that it, it is possible. Your thoughts? I really think that it's possible. You know, when we put two things on the scale, one is the the COVID and another is U.S. citizen. And you really need to say, you know, from the from the look, from the point of view of the um, administration, you really need to save the country and the country at large is more um, is more to be protected. So but I think it is not going to be a blunt. You cannot come out. I'm sorry, you cannot come in. It's not going to be um, a blunt like that, but it will be some criteria and some exception to that. So to me, I think what what should happen is that they can may, maybe have a state quarantine that is strictly enforced, you know, and a, a certain area that these um, designated that you need to be quarantined in this area, which is very difficult. You know how people... Um, they like to be free and they like to make their own decision. So it's going to be difficult to implement, but it could happen. Anytime you have to call an attorney and have an attorney um, represent you, it's it's really because you want the attorney to tell you everything is going to be okay. I kind of feel <laughs> like that's the last question for you. Is everything going to be okay, Tammy? Tell us, please, especially if you're, you know, an immigrant or uh, or have been impacted by the immigration policy changes. Um, and you do so great, you know, in terms of informing the community of these policy changes. But your last words, if you should sh- so kindly answer that question, is everything going to be okay? This is very difficult. <laughs> it's going to be difficult. Um, the way that I practice law is that I do not sugarcoat my clients because it's their own for their own good, for their own benefit. I rather have a full information disclosed to them, explain to them, this is the alternative, this is their options. And if they choose this way, this is what's going to happen. If they choose the other way, this is going to happen. So the, the best advice for me is just to stay informed, find, educate yourself, find information, reliable source of information, verify the information that you receive and stay informed and then make an informed decision so that it's best for your future. You don't, want, you don't want to make a mistake by deciding on something that is error right now, and then it could impact your future of immigration case in the future. Do you have any last questions or thoughts, John? No, I think that's a good time to wrap it up. Good, good response. Yeah, that is great. Tammy, I want to thank you so much for being here with us on the program. Um, I did have one last thing, though. I mean, I hope you're taking care of yourself. Uh, we need you. We need you to stick around. Um, so what do you do to, to rest and to, to have fun? And, and What do I do to rest? Well, I like gardening. Um, the people who are my friends on Facebook will see I like cooking. I like gardening, during, especially during this COVID. I don't get to go out that much because, um, you know, my concern, I don't want to be exposed. I know how important it is to, to stay well and stay healthy. I need to be healthy so I can help other people. If, if I'm collapsing, then there will be a lot of people that got affected by this. So I like to garden. I, I like to see flowers and I like to see the fruits of my, in my garden of my work. Do you watch Thai shows at all? I used to. I don't have time to do that anymore. What What is good now? <laughs> I was going to say, that might add more stress to you, but maybe not. I don't know. I just finished a good one with Thai vampires. Uh, but that's, <laughs> that's for another show. Tammy, thank you so much for joining us here on the program and all the work that you do. And I'm sure of it, you know, your, your clients and the Thai community and the immigrant community absolutely appreciate your work as well. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. If you'd like to be in contact with Tammy or have a question for her about immigration, you can do so uh, by looking her up, Tammy Sumonta. And we'll also, if you look through the program, um, you'll see on social media, she's incredibly active and has videos all the time when when these changes happen. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here for this very important program. We have more coming up. As John mentioned, there have been over 175 programs here that the Commonwealth Club has produced since COVID-19 has put us 
in the to this uh, shelter in place or limitations in being face to face. We have a, an incredible program happening next week, uh, touching on mental health and youth. You know, uh, the kids are going back to school, um, and and you know, coming out of, of being shelter in place for so long. So there's lots to talk about uh, as we hope to create safe places, safe spaces for all of our community members. And so, John, you have the last word to end the program. Well, I'll add a quick plug there, and uh, we've got a big program on Tuesday with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Oh, so, yes. how can I forget? <laughs> you can find info on that, of course, at CommonwealthClub.org. You can find all of uh, future Michelle Meow shows at the club, as well as past ones at CommonwealthClub.org slash MMS. Thank you very much, everyone. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you in the future. <laughs>